Good morning, everyone. It's a privilege to be able to share with all of you who consider Southridge your local church family, as well as those hanging out with us as guests who are curious about what a life of faith in Jesus is all about. You're joining us in the third week of a series of messages we've called At Our Best, where we're exploring different aspects of what it could look like when clusters of followers of Jesus, like ours, follow Jesus in a fully devoted way. Because we've encountered Jesus as the one who uniquely and comprehensively reveals who God is and what he's really like and therefore what he desires for us to become, and that's nothing more or less than love incarnate, it's our singular goal to allow him to mess with our ideas, motives, words, and behavior in any way that he wants to so that we may experience that love and then be at our best by extending that love into our world through every aspect of our lives. Last week, Jeff Lockyer described specifically how that love is radically generous in the way that Jesus poured out his life for us. And that radical generosity can now be spread into the world exponentially more as communities of spirit-filled followers of Jesus have that same giving spirit multiplied in and through their lives collectively. He described how as we learn to freely receive all the resources God pours into our lives as his kids, we can then pass it on by freely giving our lives away, whether it's through our time, energy, talent, or material resources. The kingdom of God was put on brilliant display in the wake of that kind of generosity in the early church, even to the point where there were no needy persons among them, as it says in Acts. Wouldn't it be something if we could get to that place in our community where we're at our best in the same way? Today, we're going to look at another aspect of what happens when the love of God is incarnated not only in Jesus' human body, but the bodies of his followers to whom he's given the gift of the Holy Spirit. So while last week we took a deep dive into the radical generosity of God and how that translates into us being at our best, this week we want to zero in on how the radical inclusivity of God demonstrated in Jesus has a new outlet in his followers when they are at their best, they pursue friendships that are way more diverse than they would be if God wasn't the driving force of their lives, as they follow the lead of the Holy Spirit in their day-to-day, moment-by-moment journeys. Most importantly for us listening here today, how could we, as the local church family we collectively call Southridge, begin to live into this quality of modeling the pursuit of inclusive friendships in the way of Jesus so we can be at our best. The Jewish culture that Jesus grew up in was a culture of exclusivity and line and boundary drawing. There was a hierarchy of who was in, who was out, the haves and the have-nots, starting at the top with the Jewish religious elite and then cascading down from there with sinners who were Jews that didn't follow the rules very well, including some truly deplorable behaviors like ripping fellow Jews off when collecting taxes for the Roman government, women and children, and then there were those pesky, invading, oppressive Gentile Romans. And it's in this context that we find Jesus repeatedly getting in trouble from the culture and behavior police, which started with the religious leaders getting their underwear in a knot when Jesus kept associating and even partying with those they considered undesirables and who they called sinners. Jesus' friends including, included an increasing number of shady tax collectors and prostitutes, which earned him the insulting moniker friend of sinners. 
Jesus talked about how the religious elite complained that he feasts and drinks, and you say he's a glutton and a drunkard and a friend of tax collectors and other sinners. But wisdom is shown to be right by the lives of those who follow it. Because of who he was, God, love, incarnate, Jesus gladly parted with the ways of dominant culture that dictated that if you were religious, you were only supposed to pay attention to and hang out with people who looked like you, believed like you, and behaved like they were supposed to. In the episode following these words of Jesus, we're told the story of how he accepted the invitation of a religious leader to come over for dinner that clearly demonstrates how he's earned this friend of sinners insult that he happily wears with pride. Little side note here, notice that Jesus also loved the religious elite. He didn't just hang out with people who were on the surface different than him. He didn't ostracize the people who are already experiencing full acceptance in the dominant culture. But as we'll see shortly, he didn't let that get in the way of him befriending those on the outside with their socially unorthodox gestures, even when their reputation as immoral was duly earned. While Jesus is sitting at the table, enjoying dinner and chewing the fat with the dinner guests, a so-called immoral woman, probably a prostitute, unceremoniously and forcefully crashes the party, breaks into the room, and starts fawning all over Jesus' feet in ways that made the dinner guests feel awkward. And then bawling like a baby, she breaks a jar of expensive perfume and pours it all over Jesus' feet, wiping them with her hair. And this causes Jesus' host to be incensed. The gall that this woman not only had to interrupt this gathering where she was for sure not invited, then to be touching a man who wasn't her husband in such a sensual way in public was more than Jesus' Pharisee host could handle. And so in reaction to the indignity of it all, he said to himself, if this man were a prophet, he would know what kind of woman is touching him. She's a sinner. But Jesus' litmus test for what's beautiful wasn't about how closely it lined up with etiquette. According to Jesus, etiquette bows to genuine, sincere, authentic love Every time, he wasn't receiving this attention in a sexual way, but rather recognized her gesture for what it was, a humble expression of gratitude because of how Jesus made her feel different than any other man who had laid eyes on her. He didn't see her as someone to be looked down upon, mocked, or used as an object for pleasure. He saw her for the precious child of God she was and made her feel it to her core by the way he treated her. After all, all the trauma from the things that had been done to her at the hands of selfish men, and the regret for things that she had done and choices she had made that needed repentance. The way Jesus must have previously treated her with great dignity obviously rocked her world to the degree that she lost all inhibitions in expressing thanks and even worship to Jesus. As it turns out, the Pharisee in whose home Jesus is dining just doesn't get it. Her past and the ensuing reputation and status get in the way of the Pharisee seeing that her heart is good and that what will heal her brokenness is love, not shame. And so he misses out on the opportunity of a meaningful interaction with this woman who in so many ways was very different than him. Jesus, on the other hand, knows that as she gets to know him, the things about her life that are truly destructive will come to light and fall away. 
And the things that reveal her true self, God's image imprinted on her soul, responses like tears and wasted perfume and loving touch will come out of her life more and more. This Pharisee misses out on the joy of the inclusivity of the incarnated God in Jesus because to him, conformity and social propriety were more important than a tender heart seeing to the core of a beautiful image bearer of God. So I think it's clear from this story of Jesus gladly receiving the affection and communion of one who was labeled an outsider because of her behavior, reputation, and status that he absolutely welcomed diverse relationships in his life. It's like there uh, was nothing that could be true or imagined about anyone that would stop Jesus from wanting to be friends with them. Now let's fast forward a few years. Jesus has been crucified and resurrected. He's ascended back to the right hand of the Father. The Holy Spirit has been poured out on the original followers of Jesus. And they're amazed at how God has been drawing so many of their fellow Jews into a transformed life of faith in him. Peter has been traveling all over Israel and the surrounding area, wel welcoming many people uh, with Jewish, Jewish background into the family of faith. As they hear the message and witness the love and power of the resurrected Jesus in this movement. In the midst of his travels, Peter parks himself in Joppa for a while and is taking a bit of chill time with God on the roof of his host Simon's house. And as he's praying, Jesus meets Peter in an ecstatic vision where a sheet is lowered out of the sky with all kinds of non-kosher animals in it. God commands Peter to kill some of these animals and eat them. Peter freaks out when he hears this. His Bible tells him in no uncertain terms that he is never to do such a thing. And he responds to God by telling him there's no way on God's green earth that he'll engage in that kind of behavior. But God insists, repeating this vision three times and telling Peter in no uncertain terms that he should not call something unclean if God has made it clean. The significance of God showing this to Peter three times over before the sheet is taken back up into heaven would not have been lost on Peter. Peter would have recalled with sorrow and regret the three times he denied Jesus on the night of his crucifixion. He would also have remembered how in the wake of Jesus' resurrection, he was graciously fully forgiven and restored by Jesus who then commissions him not once, not twice, but three times to the high calling of feeding his sheep in spite of Peter's three mammoth mistakes. That experience of grace would have been tattooed on Peter's heart forever and surely would have been recalled in the aftermath of this vision. So this thrice repeated vision meant that Peter had really better pay attention. And as Peter's pondering the meaning of this vision, there's a knock at the door. He finds that it turns out that God wasn't just trying to get Peter's attention. God was also reaching out to a Roman officer named Cornelius, who had heard very specifically from God to go directly to Peter and Joppa and bring him back to his place. Just to make sure Peter doesn't get this part wrong, God directly tells Peter to not hesitate going with these dudes at the door to where they want to take him. The fact that this encounter happened immediately following the three times repeated vision would for sure make Peter curious about what the heck God was up to. And what Peter experienced after that would change his life and the trajectory of the church forever. 
On the way to Cornelius' place, he must have connected the dots between the triple vision and this assignment because when they got there, he didn't hesitate to go to, into Cornelius' house and interact with him. We know this because he said to Cornelius and the others gathered there, you know it is against our laws for a Jewish man to enter a Gentile home like this or to associate with you. But God has shown me that I should no longer think of anyone as impure or unclean. So I came without objection as soon as I was sent for. Now tell me why you sent for me. Cornelius tells Peter about the vision he received and simply says, whatever you've got from God, I'm here to listen and receive it. Well, this seals the deal for Peter, who replies, I see very clearly that God shows no favoritism. In every nation, he accepts those who fear him and do what is right. Then he proceeds to explain the good news of Jesus coming into the world to bring everyone back into intimate relationship with God. Then, as if it could get any crazier, Peter's world is further rocked to the core when even before he's finished talking, God shazams Cornelius and his household with the baptism of the Holy Spirit, illustrating beyond all shadow of a doubt that God had directly accepted Cornelius just as he was, without having to become more righteous to be in God's inner circle. This messed with Peter's head so much that he had to catch up with God and seal this encounter with him in the full body prayer of baptism, marking their initiation into the family of God restored by Jesus. So why did I take all this time to retell this story of cross-cultural friendship initiating? Because what we see going on here is totally instructive for how Jesus is inviting his followers to behave today. What was true of Jesus and true of his earliest followers desperately needs to be true of us if we are to continue the legacy of living out the all-inclusive love of God. It's reaching out to every ethnicity and every marginalized people group, no matter who they are, people like us. The embrace of God that restores us to intimacy with him and to one another is for all people everywhere. Peter had to unlearn the deeply ingrained ways of exclusivist thinking that hindered him from embracing the wide diversity of everyone God was embracing. He had to get over himself and realize that God had called everyone clean. There are no outsiders to God's love. The fruit of this should be that God's family represents the most diverse cross-section of people you can imagine. Unfortunately, this is generally not the MO for most people, including and often especially within the church community. It's human nature to want to comfortably be around and prioritize people who think like, look like, talk like, dress like, and believe like us. And whether it's because of the fear of the unknown and unfamiliar or a smugness that comes from a false sense of superiority in whatever form, racially, morally, intellectually, whatever, the temptation to just stick with people who see through the same cultural lens as us doesn't appreciate the reality that God is at work already in every category and subcategory we might be tempted to want to avoid and or write off as unclean in God's eyes. However, the examples of Jesus' own life and his later schooling of Peter raise some pretty pointed questions for those of us who've responded to the invitation of Jesus to follow in his footsteps. I'd like to suggest that these are questions that we need to humbly consider individually and as a collective church family. Here are a bunch that come to mind. 
Who are some people that I avoid because I'm afraid of and or skeptical about them? Why might I be afraid of and or skeptical of these people? How do I perceive them to be different than me? Do I tend to see people who are different than me through a lens of a superiority complex, like I'm better than them, or an inferiority complex, like I've got nothing to offer or bring to the table? How might walking more closely with Jesus begin to dismantle both of these complexes? Which groups of people on the margins of my life am I tempted to label as unclean and therefore avoid or expect them to conform to my religious and moral code before I fully embrace them as God's kids? How can I exercise the humility to let God sort out which of our differences from one another already reflect his heart of love, which ones don't and therefore need to be repented of, and which don't matter as much as I might think they do? For the differences that I really think do matter and where I might be right, can I trust God to bring the necessary light to help them see their need for the changes as needed and simply just accept and embrace them as fellow children of God before they see things like I do? Let me ask a specific question about one marginalized people group that the church has often written off and traditionally brought loads of harm to. I'm referring to the LGBTQ plus community. Many in our country are celebrating LGBTQ plus Pride Month, so it seems timely to raise the following question. For those of us who are non-affirming in their point of view on our LGBTQ plus neighbors, how might Jesus' words to Peter, don't call unclean what God has called clean, challenge your perspective of and willingness to not only welcome, but fully embrace and then receive all the ways God is beautifully and uniquely shining his image through these precious ones. One other people group uh, that church families like ours have also not necessarily historically been open to embracing unless they conform to our dominantly white church ways are our indigenous neighbors. Groups like becoming our Becoming Good Relatives uh, team here at Southridge are trying to help us see how the mainstream cultural water we swim in has, cultural, or has chronically looked down on, minimized, and labeled indigenous culture as spiritually inferior or even dangerous. Uh, could we be a group of Jesus followers who aren't on a paranoid lookout for boogeymen under every rock uh, when we interact with these brothers and sisters as they live out their rituals and traditions? Like Peter, can we affirm, celebrate, and even learn from how God is already at work in cultures different than ours? Can we trust God to shed light on and make clear what needs repentance in their culture and religion, even as we do in our own? Can we be on the lookout for how many of these cultural differences might actually add value to our lives? And instead of just immediately writing them off as evil or weird or irrelevant, how might cultivating relationships of trust with our indigenous neighbors even build the needed bridge to have the credibility for us to share how the radical story of God's self-revelation and incarnation in Jesus wants to draw them into an even more intimate experience of creator as our imminently present heavenly papa? Let's not miss out on the unique ways God wants to show us his grace and show his grace through us 
by avoiding relationships with people who are on the margins of our lives and the margins of society. Let's not miss out on the radical honesty, vulnerability, and deep faith that often accompany people on the margins who have suffered deeply, like people who have experienced homelessness or food insecurity or the elderly, among others. Let's not avoid these relationships out of fear or pride or insecurity or apathy. Let's trust that if we go into environments that are uncomfortable and outside the box for us, that Jesus is already there and will go with us and show us how we can both offer and receive genuine friendship. Let's be like Peter and not hesitate to go into any social context that God invites us into with people who are different than us so we can both offer and receive the diverse ways that God wants to give us gifts through one another. This is when we are at our best as followers of Jesus. This is when we'll best experience the intimate presence of our infinitely creative God. This is when we'll best demonstrate that the kingdom of God is truly among us. Let me close by offering a quote that expresses what I hope will be the welcoming, welcoming spirit that each of us will leave with and extend as we seek to be at our best with Jesus in pursuing radically inclusive, diverse friendships. In his book called In, Incarnation and Inclusion, Abba and Lamb, Brad Jerzak reveals how one church community called Meadowvale is attempting to live into being at their best by inviting many diverse people into a journey of faith with them and Jesus. This is what they say. We extend a special welcome to those who are single, married, divorced, widowed, LGBTQ, confused, filthy rich, comfortable, or dirt poor. We extend a special welcome to wailing babies and excited toddlers. We welcome you whether you can sing like Pavarotti or just growl quietly to yourself. You're welcome here if you're just browsing, just woken up, or just got out of prison. We don't care if you're more Christian than the Archbishop of Canterbury or haven't been to church since Christmas 10 years ago. We extend a special welcome to those who are over 60 but not grown up yet, and to teenagers who are growing up too fast. We welcome keep fit moms, football dads, starving artists, tree huggers, latte sippers, vegetarians, junk food eaters. We welcome those who are in recovery or still addicted. We welcome you if you're having problems, are down in the dumps, or don't like organized religion. We offer a welcome to those who think the earth is flat, work too hard, don't work, can't spell, or are here because granny is visiting and just wanted to come to church. We welcome those who are inked, pierced, both, or neither. We offer a special welcome to those who could use a prayer right now, had religion shoved down their throat as kids, have lived in Canada their whole lives, or just arrived yesterday. We welcome pilgrims, tourists, seekers, doubters, and you, will you pray with me? Lord Jesus, you've mercifully begun the renovation project that is the transformation of each of our lives and character into the best version of ourselves by your spirit. Thank you that as the scripture says, you will continue your work until it is finally finished on the day when you return. But I've got to say I'm impatient for the completion of that work in my life and the life of our church family so we can be at, at our best in the world you loved so much that you crossed every boundary to be close to us. In the places we are hesitant, afraid, or stubborn in our refusal to let you have your way in making us as inclusive and welcoming as you are, would you graciously keep showing us what needs to be changed so that we can live 
more like the citizens of the kingdom of God, that as those who have committed our lives to following you, we are. Amen.